Church, how are you today? It is so wonderful to be here with you. And could you just help me welcome all of our campuses joining us at Orange Park, over at St. John's, people who are joining us online, wherever you're joining us through over the world. We are so glad that you've chosen to join us today for Celebration Church. Trust that God's word is going to build you up and bless you today. Um, Stovall sends his love and his greetings. He's with the church in Northern Ireland with Pastor John and Rachel Scott, building the church up there, ministering to them, preaching to them. I believe he's six hours ahead, so he should be right about dinner right now. So eating some corned beef and cabbage over there in Ireland. But um, anyway, so great to be with you. I've loved this series, Giants. We're continuing on with that series uh, today. I don't know about you, but I can always use some great inspiration when it comes to just recognizing the giants in my life and overcoming the giants in my life. It's been a great series for me, and I've loved it so much. And so I'm glad to be able to kind of continue on that theme today. And um, you know, I, I often don't speak first of all when he's out of town. He asks me, but a lot of times I turn him down because it's weird. Like every time Stovall goes out of town and I'm speaking, something weird happens. Like I get a flat tire or the dishwasher, like the disposal where you put the food, like it'll back up and, and I can't get a repairman out and it'll be like rotten food in the sink for days or the toilet will overflow. Something weird happens. So like today, I was leaving this morning to come to church and I walk out into my driveway and, and I'm already just kind of flustered because you know it's time change weekend and I'm not a morning person, like that is the understatement of the century. Do not like the mornings. So I'm walking out and there is a dog in my driveway and it's an ugly dog. <laughs> and it is a big dog and this dog does not like me. And it starts growling. I'm like, it's between me and the car. Like, how am I gonna get to the car? So I decide that somehow I've got to like run far around the gate and then jump on top of my car and roll around the roof. <laughs> I'm just kidding, that didn't really happen. <laughs> but I did that to show you the power of our words to create vision and to create images in our mind. You know, when I said I walked out and saw a dog in the parking lot, in my driveway, if you have a dog, you probably imagined your dog. And then if, when I said it was an ugly dog, you knew I wasn't talking about your dog. Because <laughs> nobody's dog is ugly if it belongs to them. And then when I said it was a big dog, it grew. And then when I said it didn't like me, maybe you imagined it snarling or its teeth bared or drool coming out of its mouth, you're foaming at the mouth. And just by telling you a few words, with very few descriptions around it, I created a vision in your mind because words create vision. The words that we speak create vision and vision creates expectation and expectation sets direction. Our words have the power, the Bible tells us in James, to set the course of our lives. And this is exactly how it was with the children of Israel when they got right to the edge of the promised land. They were about to inherit the promise of God, the very place they had been moving toward for two years. He had taken them out of Egypt. He had brought them to the desert. He had led them with fire and with a pillar of smoke. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They defeated armies against all odds. They had seen God come through so many times. And so right now they are on the edge of walking into the promised land and possessing the thing that God called them out to possess. And Moses decides, look, I just wanna send some spies out into the land and I wanna see what it's all about. I wanna get a report 
on it. So he sends these spies out to the land, and let's look here in Numbers chapter 13, verses 27 through 32. We've read this before. I wanna read it in a little bit of a different translation. But it says this. It says, the 12 spies said to Moses, we checked out the land just as you'd instructed us to do, and here's what we discovered. It's rich, very rich. One could say that it flows with milk and honey. And look, here's some of its fruit. The land is highly desirable. Wow, that sounds like a place I'd like to be, right? They have this giant fruit, the produce grows really big, it's flowing with milk and honey, it's beautiful, it's everything you said it would be, Moses. It's everything that God said it would be. But then they go on and they keep talking about it. They keep on talking, okay, this would have been a great place to stop. How many of you have kept on talking and then wish later you wish you'd just shut up? You know, like I like to go out on a win. <laughs> Sometimes the more I keep talking, the worse it gets. And that's what happened to the children of Israel. They said, but the people who already live there are really strong and their cities are enormous and fortified. And what's more, we saw the Anakites there. And in the Negev, there were the Amalekites. And in the high hill country, the Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites. And after the seacoast, the Canaanites lived there along the Jordan River too. But Caleb calmed the congregation and he spoke to Moses. We should go straight in right away and take it over. We are surely able. Same reality, same data, same input, different words, different report. And as we'll see, different outcome. And the other scout says, said, no way, we can't do it. The people who are already there are way too strong for us. And verse 32 says this. So the report of these other scouts was quite disheartening. It made the people question God's promises. Their report made the people question God's promises. And you know, it, was, it says that their, their words, the report that those spies brought, it had the effect of discouraging the people, in other words, of taking courage away from them, so that in the end, that, that generation of Israelites never, ever, ever saw the promised land. They had to wait a whole generation to die out, and then they had to go back in in 40 years and take it over. And the pivotal point was their report, was their words. And you know, so many times we think, we talk about giants, the giants keeping us from the promised land, the giants in our way, the giants we have to fight. So many times what comes to mind, the minute we say that, is our circumstances, the job we want, the house we live in, the marriage that we, that we either want or the one that we have already that we don't like, or the kids that we want or the kids we have that we don't like, or the job that we want or the job that we have that we don't like. It's the circumstances that we think are the giants. But most of the time, much of the time, the giants that we think we're fighting are actually not out there, they're in here. The giants are in here. And our words create this cycle of thought, word, belief, outcome, that has the power to set the course for our lives. And so today we're gonna look into the word of God and we're gonna see how our words have power to shape the outcomes and the destiny of our life. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we love your word. We love to study your word, we love to read your word, we love to sit under your word, we love to receive your word. And we thank you that when we do that, our lives are changed, our minds are renewed, the outcome of our lives has the potential to be really different. And God, we thank you because you loved us enough to give us your son and to give us your word to show us how to live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So talking about giants, I've entitled this message, Speaking of Giants. Speaking of giants, how do we speak of the giants in our lives? Because how we speak about the giants in our lives has a great deal to do with how we 
fight the giants in our lives. If we fight the giants in our lives or if we just kind of roll over on our back like my dog does and goes, go, you're the master here, you win, I give up. Okay, so the first point, the first thing I wanna tell us about our words is that our words have creative power. Our words have creative power. Proverbs 18, 20 through 21 says this, from the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled and with the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. Let me break this down a little bit for you. In the beginning, verse 20, the writer of Proverbs literally likens the words that come out of our mouth to seeds that are planted in the ground. The words are seeds and the ground is our lives. When we speak words, we're sowing seeds into the ground of our lives. And so think about the seeds that you're sowing into your life right now. Now you have to be careful with stuff like this because people can get really, really weird and legalistic and crazy when you talk about speaking your reality and speaking God's word and confessing. I'm not talking about a name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. You know, there's, you know if, if there's, you don't wanna get weird like someone comes up to you and, hey, are you feeling okay today? Yes, brother, I'm, I'm healed, I'm whole, I'm set free. And you're like, got snot running down, you're coughing, your eyes are all, you're sick, you need to go to the doctor, take some, take some antibiotics. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the long range patterns that we develop in our lives through what we speak. And the Bible also goes on to say, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Wow, that is a big deal. Life and death are in the power of what you say. You have the power to speak life into a situation or to continue bringing death into, the, into a situation. And it also says those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, those who love to use the power of their tongue will eat the fruit of the seeds that they sow with their mouth. So we need to be careful of how much we love talking things up. We need to be careful about how much we love hitting the water cooler for the latest gossip. We need to be careful about just letting our words run rampant out of our mouths when we get mad. We need to be careful of having outbursts of anger or outbursts of uncontrollable emotions that give, give voice to words that we wish we didn't say. You know, you can go back and tell someone, I'm sorry I said that, but you actually can't take away the memory it caused. So it's very good to, as the Bible admonishes us time and time again, just be quiet a little bit. It even goes as far as to say, even a stupid person, when they keep silent, is considered wise. You can make people think you're smarter than you are just by being quiet. <laughs> Some of you, you're at your smartest when you're quiet. So, but that's why we have two ears. We have one mouth. Listen more, talk less. Those who love to use the power of their tongue will eat the fruit of the harvest they sow. And you know, what is the vision? If our words create life and death, if they create vision that then sets expectation, that then sets direction, you know, what is the vision that we all are setting. And I don't know about you, but I'm gonna be honest, I want a happy life. I wanna be happy, and I don't mean happy like, you know, like um, frivolous, pleasure-seeking. You know, I know that trials come our way, but when I don't say happy, I mean a deep happiness. More like joy, more like fulfilled, more like knowing that my life has purpose, more like appreciating what's around me, the relationships in my life, that they're healthy, they're strong. You know, all of us want that. That's good, that's godly to want that because you pass that on to your kids. And so, you know, if I have to be honest with you, I ask myself all the time, what is it that truly makes us happy? Because if I can be completely honest with you, just a moment of vulnerability here, I don't have a naturally high set point for happiness. 
I mean, all of us have, you know, some people are more naturally happy than others. Like, Stovall is a more naturally happy person than I am. In fact, sometimes I like to call him clinically happy. He's so optimistic. I'm like, are you living in the same world that I am? Because, I mean, you are not seeing the same reality as me. Very, very positive. Very, Pastor John Wyatt, very optimistic, very happy. Some people really have a higher set point for happiness than other people. I'm a really analytical person. How many of you are analytical? You like to analyze things. Good, okay, so that can serve you really well at work. This is what analysts do. Analysts take anything and they break it down to its smallest parts and then they decide what's missing. Okay, how many of you are married to an analyst? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> they break you down all the time and decide what's missing. Okay, that is a skill that serves you really well at work. Doesn't serve you so great in your marriage. I'm here to tell you by experience. Doesn't help you. All right, so you have to, if you get in the habit of thinking like that, you can become a person with a low set point for happiness. And that's what I was. And I realized this, okay. One day, I was driving through Starbucks and, um, Pumpkin spice lattes had just come out. So amen, can I get a witness in the house? Pumpkin spice, okay. That is a day for happiness and celebration when the pumpkin spice lattes make their reappearance first day of fall. I'm on my way, little breeze is blowing, little sun is setting, not too hot, not too cold. Drinking my extra hot pumpkin spice latte. I like to get a tall, not a grande, because they mess up the proportions when they get bigger than tall. It was a perfect day. And I had just downloaded Taylor Swift's new album, 19 whatever, 89, and I was singing Shake It Up in the car. Just moment of honesty, I love that song, Shake It Off. I was like, shake it off, just go, you know, and um, probably if you had seen me driving around, maybe you would have thought that I was praying in tongues, but I wasn't. I was singing, shake it off. And all of a sudden, this feeling washed over me. It was this feeling like this emotion, and I was like, wow, what is that? And then I realized it was happiness. <laughs> and I thought, I'm a really unhappy person. <laughs> I mean like so much so that happiness felt unfamiliar to me whenever I felt it. Isn't that sad? This wasn't like when I was unsaved. This was like last fall, people. <laughs> I was in church, okay. <laughs> Oh, but what had happened was I had gotten so busy. I had let my schedule get a little bit out of control. I had just released the book, Rhythms of Grace. So I got really out of the rhythm of grace by releasing the book because it was a lot of work. And I had just gotten so stressed and I was so worn out. And so I got to this point where like, if I just wasn't having a negative day, I would tell myself it's a happy day. So if I'm not, if I wasn't walking around ticked off at random people 70% of the day, happy. <laughs> if I wasn't depressed, I'm happy. If I wasn't sad, I was happy. Sad, happy had just come to me to mean the absence of bad things. But really, I was living at neutral all the time. I never really felt happy. Because happy should be a positive charge, not a neutral. And so many times, if we live our lives at such a low level, where we're always thinking negatively, we lower our expectations so much, we lose the ability to be happy. And I just wanna say right now, some of us, some of you are like me. You need to practice being happy again. You need to find moments of happiness and practice Happiness. Listen, I know that people will say God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. But as if you could be holy and not happy or happy and not holy. If God is God, then how can you be in alignment with him and not be happy? God gave us happiness as an indicator of health and when you go too long without it, you're not healthy. Let me just set you free so it's okay to try to be happy. Doesn't mean that you have to go off and get a tattoo and get a mini skirt and get plastic surgery and go clubbing, okay? That's not what that means. That's pleasure, that's not happiness. It doesn't have to be complicated, 
But I became really intentional about creating moments of happiness, and they're very simple. Very simple. Every day I try to create moments of happiness. They're very simple and they're very holy to me. So I started doing research about happiness. What makes people happy? And I found this out. This is what makes people happy, okay? 10% of what makes people happy is related to circumstances. 10%, only 10% is related to circumstances. So in other words, if you really wanted to get a new car and you've been saving up for this new car, you really wanted this car, you've been thinking about it, thinking about it, you've been driving an old dump, beat up, old used Oldsmobile with the door falling off, gray paint, and then you finally get this car, right? And what does every car smell like when you get in? New car smell. New car smell, I love new car smell. It's the best smell in the world. And I know it's because of toxins. And I know it's probably causing cancer to me. And I know it's bad for the environment, but I love new car smell and I don't understand why. If you can put that smell in a used car that used to belong to a rental company, why can't you sell that to me? I need it. Okay, but let's just say you got a new car. And what happens when you get a new car? There's this space of time when like you love to drive it, right? Like you drive it, you can't wait to go on your lunch break and then you can't wait to get off work and you wanna go, I need some, something from the store, I'll go get it. You wanna get in that car, right? But then what happens? The new car smell wears off. Now it smells like leftover Happy Meals. You're not so happy anymore. All right, this is what circumstances are like to our life. They only give you a net bump up of 10% more happiness, no matter what they are. And it has a short shelf life. After a very short time, you go back to your natural set point, which brings me to my next thing. The other thing that makes people happy is genetics. 50% of how much happiness we feel is based on our, just how we're wired, like me. I do not have a high set point for happiness. There's not much I can do about the way I'm wired. Now, that doesn't mean if I'm struggling with ongoing clinical depression, I could take medicine. I don't know. You can do things to help, but at the end of the day, you are who you are. But then there's another 40%. The rest of this is 40%. And do you know that 40% of our happiness, okay, 10% circumstances really can't control. 50% genetics can't control that. But 40% of our happiness has to do with factors that are completely within our control. And that ought to make you feel great. Because that means 40% of your happiness is something that you can directly affect by doing certain things. Are you happy? I'm not gonna tell you what those things are. I don't have enough time. There's a book called The Laws of Happiness by Dr. Henry Cloud. He's a Christian psychologist. You can get it. I got those stats from him. But one of the things is that happy people think well. They know how to think well. Okay. That means that they are aware of what they're thinking and they change their thoughts to align with what they want to happen. The scientists, uh, psychologists call this metacognition. It just means think about what you're thinking about. Don't believe everything you think. And they're, and they're positive. They practice positive thinking. And we have the power to do this. And this is why it's important. Let me tell you why this is important. Because thoughts produce words. Now, hopefully you think a little bit, at least at a subconscious level, about what you're gonna say <laughs> before you say it. If you don't ever think and you just blurt things out, there's, that's a disorder, okay? But um, there's, that's a clinical problem. But all of us thoughts, we mull over thoughts in our minds and they produce words. And then words, once they are spoken, they reinforce our thoughts. So do you know why that's so powerful? 
Whenever you think something in your mind, you say it with your mouth, it reinforces the thought. Just you saying it and hearing it reinforces the thought that you had. So that's why it's so important that when we come into church, that we participate in worship. It's not like the sing-along portion, if you wanna do it, you can. You don't have to worship God, you don't have to. But we need to not think of worship like it's the singing portion, unless it's time to sing. No, it is you declaring the word of God into that atmosphere over your life, aligning your words with your faith. You're speaking words that reinforce the thoughts that you have about God. Where else do you go all week long that lets you say and hear and see there is no other name but Jesus? Your every gate to your soul is absorbed when you are praising God. You're watching it, you're hearing it, you're speaking it. Praise is powerful because our words have the power of life and death. That's why I'm a huge believer in participating in praise and worship. Don't just go, oh, I don't like that song, drums are too loud. Like find a way to experience the presence of God because it's life changing. So, you know, thoughts produce words, words produce thoughts. Reinforced thoughts then become beliefs. So there's this cycle. We think something, we say it, it reinforces the thought. Now it goes deeper, it becomes a heart belief. Then beliefs shape our actions. And then actions shape, produce outcomes. And our lives are the sum of this cycle on repeat. What you think, what you say, what you believe, what you do, what happens. Then that either reinforces what you believe, what you think, what you say, what you believe, what you do, what happens. And our lives become the sum of this formula over and over again. But so many times we live life so reactively, we don't step back to recognize that this is going on. And so we end up places and we're like, how did I get here? Why is my life like this? Why am I addicted to this? Why do I struggle with this? How am I end up in this terrible relationship? Why do I keep picking the wrong people to date over and over again? How do I keep making bad financial decisions? Why can't I ever get this right? Why can't I hold a job? And we keep trying to change this outcome when many of the times we have to do is go all the way back here and go, what do I really believe about this? Because underneath all the actions are words that we've spoken and beliefs that we've created. And there are like patterns in our lives that we have to reset and break free in a very powerful way. It's not just about changing your words, not just an outer thing, but aligning your words and your hearts and your actions that can change the trajectory of your life. And you know, one of the most toxic and discouraging belief patterns that we can fall into, and unfortunately it's one of the most common, is the belief, the thought pattern of if only. If only I was married, I would be happy. Why don't you go ask some married people if being married makes you happy. <laughs> if only I was single, I would be happy. <laughs> if only I had kids, I would be happy. If only I didn't have kids, I would be happy. If only I, had, if only I got this job, I would be happy. If only I had a different job, I would be happy. If I moved into this house, I would be happy. If I had an apartment, I'd be happy. So many things, see, that's the 10%. We put so much of our energy into the 10% of circumstances that every circumstance has its own challenges. So people who are poor have a certain set of challenges. People who are rich have a certain set of challenges. People who are average looking have a certain set of challenges. People who are really beautiful have a certain set of challenges. People who are short, like me, have a certain set of challenges. I have to keep step stools in every single room of my house so I can use my upper storage. I cannot reach anything without a step stool. I can go two steps up and that's it, then it's pulling out ladders. That's it. But people who are tall have certain challenges. Women who are tall can't wear heels a lot of times. They have to wear flats. These are cool shoes, I like wearing them. I'm glad I'm short when I put these shoes on because it doesn't make me too tall. So everybody, that sounds silly, but every circumstance has its own challenges and its own benefits. That's why you'll hear people, they come back from mission trips and they'll say, I went there to minister to these people, but they ministered to me. 
These people, they had less than anybody I've ever seen, but they had more joy than anybody I know. How is that? Because of the 10%. It's just 10%. It doesn't matter. The things that we think we're fighting for are not the things we should be fighting for. We ought to be fighting for what's going on in here, what's going on in here, and what's coming out of here. Every single day. Every single day. And so the belief of if only, how many of you have an if only? If only I could have this. If only. You know, that's one of the most toxic patterns of thought because the minute we say, if only I had this, if only I were this, we all of a sudden take power out of our hands to become happy and we place it in the hands or in the realm of the arena of something else. Now that thing has the power to make us happy or not. Immediately, it puts you in a victimized position. Because now you can only be happy. You can only be fulfilled. You can only ever reach your fullest potential if this happens. You know, I had a funny thing. Stevall and I, um, we go see a marriage counselor from time to time. It's a really great counselor. He comes in, he meets with our executive team because they're crazy. And um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's kind of a service we do. We want their marriages to stay healthy as they minister. We want them to play, minister from a place of strength. And so Stovall and I take advantage of this and we go see this marriage counselor. And just, you know, most people think of their marriage like a car. I just want it to work and I don't want to think about it. And I won't think about it until things start knocking around in there. But if you would just change your oil and do, change your tire, rotate your tires once in a while, your car will work much better for much longer. So we like the prevention and the proactive way of dealing with our relationship and not the reactive way. But so we had this great counselor and I really liked meeting with him. And uh, one time I knew he was coming in. So I set me and Steve all a two hour meeting together. Yes, oh wow, I was right. That's... You're already like, I'm seeing where this is going. And I had some things, you know, that I really wanted to talk to Stovall about. And as every marriage does, we have certain, uh, certain things that are easy to talk about and certain things that, um, you know, we shout unto the Lord about as we talk. It's just, <laughs> there are some things that it's better. And I thought, you know, it would be great if I just hold on to these little topics and we can talk about them with the counselor in the room because it would be easier if there's a mediator in the room with us. Code for, if I say this in front of the counselor, then he'll see that I'm right. We can do it my way, right? <laughs> Okay, women, that's not what the counselor's for. Okay, I thought I was better than that. I wasn't better than that. Because I've taught messages on marriages and I've said don't do that, but I did it. Okay, so I knew better, I just did it. So I'm sitting in there and, and we're about to meet with the counselor and, and um, Stovall looks at me, the counselor walks in, he goes, oh, I'm sorry. I have to leave halfway through because I've got an appointment with Stovey's uh, teacher. Which most wives would be like, praise the Lord, go meet with the kid's teacher. I was like, what are you doing? This has been on your calendar for, for a month. Well, how do you have another one? He's like, I just, this, this opportunity came up to meet with Stevie's teacher. I need to take it. Um, it's his football coach and his history teacher, and I need to take it. And I was like, but this is on your calendar. The calendar is sacred. We don't violate the calendar. I had all these principles of operational principles. And he was like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to stay? You want me to cancel? You want me to go? And I was, every time he kept saying, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You want me to cancel it? You want me to stay? And I kept getting madder and madder every time he would say, what do you want me to do? And finally, I looked at him and I said, I want you to want to be here as much as I want to be here. And the counselor said, well, he doesn't. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and I said, you know, you're supposed to tell me I'm right. I don't know if you received the memo before this. <laughs> but you know, it's funny because um, I said, well, I want you to leave right now. Then if you don't want to be here, I don't want you to be here. <laughs> and so he said, good, I'm leaving in an hour. So, um, but this is, this is the freedom that this brought. There was a moment of like, he doesn't want to be here. And you know something? In my heart of hearts, I knew that he didn't want to be there. 
And I didn't ask him before I made the appointment. I was like, this doctor comes in, let's meet with him for two hours. How many of you men would love to meet with a marriage counselor for two hours and talk your issues out? <laughs> one guy, he's like, me. Okay. <laughs> Not one of you raised your hand. I know that you wouldn't want to do that because at the end of the day, this really was about me. But I just wanted him to want to fix me as much as I wanted to fix I wanted him to be involved in my process of fixing myself. So here's the thing. There was a moment of pain there when I had to face the hard, cold truth of my reality that he didn't wanna be there. But then immediately following that, there was this huge freedom because you know what? I kept depending on him to make me happy. See, before I was like, I can't be happy unless you wanna be here. When I realized he don't wanna be here, he's happy. He don't have anything he wants to talk about. He feels like he can talk to you. He's good. He wants to just go meet with the football coach. Then I realized, well, I guess this is about me. And I was able to accept my reality as it was instead of how I wished it to be. Let me say that again. I was able to accept my reality as it actually was instead of as I wished it to be. And then I was able to take my hands off my husband, quit trying to force him into my ideal reality and start working on me. Because at the end of the day, that's all I have control over. Now, can I say, we weren't having any major things. I just really wanted to talk about this certain thing with our counselor. But what I realized is I had put so many eggs in his basket to make me happy that I actually had taken power away from myself and given it all to him. He didn't even want it. He's like, I don't want to be responsible for your happiness. You be responsible for your own happiness. I can barely take care of my happiness, much less yours. But it, what I realized is that the minute we start making our happiness dependent upon a if only, we can't be happy with our real reality. We can't accept it anymore. And so now, if that doesn't happen, I can't be happy. So if only I could get married. If only I were married, then I'd be happy. Well, you're not. So what are you gonna do about it? Well, if only I had a baby, then I would be happy. Well, you don't. So what are you gonna do about it? I don't mean to be callous, okay? I know that that's hard. But so many times we are so future-oriented and so belief-oriented. I wish my parents, if only my parents had been better to me. Well, they weren't. So what are you gonna do about it? If only my parents didn't get divorced, I would be such a better person. Well, they didn't. So what are you gonna do about it? You have to accept your reality as it is. The reality for the children of Israel was that there were giants in the land. They had a promise to take the land and the reality was there are giants there. They wished it wasn't true. Reality as they wished it would be would be to walk in and there'd be no giants. But their reality was not the reality they wanted. It was the reality it was. Now, God did not say, no, I want you to go and take the promised land if there's no giants in there. God did not get them to the edge of the promised land and go, oh, man, Jesus, Holy Ghost. Did y'all see, did y'all, did any of you catch that there's giants in there? Who dropped the ball on that? Okay, let's back up. Plan B, there's giants. No, God didn't make any conditions. He's like, I've given you this land. Go take the land. They had to, they, they had this expectation that they wouldn't have to deal with things like that. And so when reality didn't meet their expectations, ah, well, we won't be able to take the land. If only there were no giants. If only there were no Canaanites. If only there was not this. If only there were no fortified cities, then we could take the land. But since there are, we can't. Now they're a victim. Now they are not responsible for their own outcomes. But the truth is they were always responsible for their own outcomes. Which brings me to second, my second point is this, that our words can either draw us in toward or push us away from God's purposes. Now, this is two years after God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
Two years they spent going through the desert. Two years they spent watching him do miracles. Two years they spent following his ways, learning his covenant, watching Moses do incredible things, watching the fire and the smoke come down from the mountain. They defeated armies that they had no business beating. Against all odds, God came through again and again and again and again. And they got straight to the edge of their miracle, straight to the edge of their promised land, straight to the edge of the promise they were supposed to possess. And right when they got there, Do you think the circumstances were the tipping point? No. What was the tipping point was their words and their report and their perspective about their circumstances. God always knew there were gonna be giants. That's why he had them go through these little practice battles all the way through up to then. He's thinking, you know, you'll see me work enough, right? And then when you get there, this won't be a big deal to you. No, it was. And do you know why? Because, third point here, and the band can get ready to come back up. In a moment, I'm gonna turn it over to the campus pastors. But here's the thing. Our words reveal what's in our heart. They reveal what's in our heart. And especially those words that we speak in moments of fear or anxiety, moments where we're overflowing with passion, moments where we're most unguarded, and what spills out during those moments are what's really and truly in our hearts. See, we all have a cover story that we want everyone to see, it's the put together us. It's the best of us, it's the, it's the us that we want everyone to see. But the real story comes out when we're under stress. And I've read this story before, if you read just this one story, this one part of the whole journey of the Israelites into the promised land, it's really easy to, to look at God's judgment on them that he said, you will not enter the promised land, you're gonna have to go back to the desert, you're gonna have to, this generation is gonna have to spend 40 years and die off and your children will inherit the land. God's promise didn't change, who inherited it did change. Not that generation, their kids. And it seems so harsh, it's like, God, come on. Just one wrong thing and they got kicked out. It's like, they give the wrong answer and you're like, eh, wrong answer. You are the weakest link, goodbye. Remember that show, weakest link? Nope, just me, okay. Um, Okay, so, but here's the thing. If you really read the whole story, since the day that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they've been, they've been repeating this refrain over and over again. He brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Okay, Moses, Pharaoh's coming up on us. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die, across the Red Sea. Now we have no food. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Here's manna. Now we have no meat. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Okay, here's quail. Okay, now we have no water. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Now we're lost. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Now we're at the, we're gonna fight these enemies on the plains. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. And God comes through again and again and again and again. They get to the edge of the promised land. And what do they say? You brought us out here in the wilderness to die because what they thought and what they said became their belief so that when the moment of truth presented itself to them, nothing else could come out of them. Nothing else could come out of them. When we look at these giant moments crossing into the promised land, parting the Red Sea as these defining moments in our lives. This is such a defining moment, but it's not true. Every moment defines us whether we realize it or not. We're building definition around our lives with the actions that we do and the words that we speak and the beliefs that we build. It's not just a one word thing, it's what you say over. So when the Israelites got to the edge of the promised land, I wonder were they even capable of saying anything else? It it wasn't defining them, it was revealing their heart. You know, because Caleb and Joshua, the two of them, it revealed their heart too. Same giants, same land, same reality, different response because there was a different heart. 
the, the ten of the spies says, we can't go in, we can't take it. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. We're greatly discouraged. And Joshua and Caleb said, we are well able. Give me that mountain. We are well able to go in and we are well able to take the land because they spent a lifetime. They spent those two years following Moses around, listening to the word and in the presence of God and aligning their words with God's words. And we have the same creative power in our words. You know, the Bible says in Luke chapter, um, chapter four, I'm sorry, chapter um, six, verse 45, it says, it's the same with people. A person full of goodness in his heart produces good things. A person with an evil reservoir in his heart produces evil things. The heart overflows in the words a person speaks. Your words reveal what's within your heart. When your heart is overflowing, what comes out? When you lose your temper, what comes out? Because that was, that was, it's not, that, that, that person didn't make you say that. That was there already. When you, get, when you get emotional and distraught and you say things you regret, that person didn't make you say that. That was already there. And now it's just overflowed. What's in your cup is gonna overflow when the cup gets tipped. So what's in there? What are you putting your words in alignment with? It matters, it starts with understanding the words that you speak and the thoughts that you, that you think and the beliefs that you embrace have the power to produce outcomes in your life. And that's why the Bible says, how do, we, how, how do we get saved? We confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart. Confession and belief, confession and belief. Those two things align. It starts with salvation and it continues on as we become conformed to the image of Christ. So today, when you go home, and you walk back into that environment, maybe that house that has some stress and strife, what are you gonna say? What triggers the words that are coming out of your mouth? What's going on in your heart? You know, James says that many times, so many times the, the reason for conflict on the outside is conflict on the inside. Maybe before we just spit, we could stop, we could think. We could, we, could, we could change the tone of our words. What does the Bible say? It says, a soft answer turns away wrath. But fierce words, to, when somebody says, where were you, you're late. I'm so sorry. You could say, it's not your business, you're not the boss of me. Who do you think, you're late every night. Or you could say, I'm so sorry. I realized I told you I'd be home at this time and I'm late. That was, in, that was inconsiderate of me. Because now you're taking ownership of your own happiness. Doesn't really matter what they do. If you give your word, you be on time. Doesn't matter if they're on time. You be on time. Because that's all you can control. You take responsibility, you take ownership, and you will become happy. That's what I've learned. I can't make anybody else responsible for my happiness. And there, a lot of it has to do with the words I'm speaking. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Our prayer is that it will help you to live a God first life. For more information about Celebration Church and other available resources, please visit our website at www.celebration.org.